Welcome to the sermon podcast of Damascus Road Church. For more information about Damascus Road Church, go to damascusroadonline.com. We're going to continue talking about 1 John. Uh, Shannon launched us into the book last week with some great introduction. The week before that, we read the whole book. Have any of you, <laughs> I keep doing all these survey questions. I study sociology kind of on the side, so I'm always interested in like surveying people. How many of you have ever sat through a whole book being read in a church service before? A whole book of the Bible. Now, that was my first that, that week. I thought, oh, I like this. Let's do more of this. Um, all right, so we, we read through it a couple weeks ago. Shannon launched us into it, uh, into the first chapter with some good introduction stuff uh, last week, and I'm going to continue with just three verses of the first chapter today. So I'll, I'll kind of recap some of the things that Shannon talked about last week. We'll read the text, pray, and, and move into it for today. Okay, so uh, last week, to begin with, Shannon talked about how John the Apostle is, uh, is writing this letter to the churches that he oversaw and pastored. And um, pause, think about John for a second. Some of the things that we know from the Gospels is that John had this really deep relationship with Jesus. And if you see the, the, the painting of the Last Supper, you see one of the disciples leaning against Jesus, and that was, that was John. Okay, So there's a, a very deep friendship, a deep brotherly relationship, just a, a deep, deep um, connection that he had with Jesus. And uh, also, when you, when you read the Gospel of John, it's different from, say, like Luke, the doctor, who's kind of relaying facts kind of historically. And um, John is a lot more intimate in the way that he talks. And a few weeks ago, I read some passages from John chapter 14, 15, and 16, and it was all about this depth of relationship with the Father. And... Uh, John talks a lot about like abiding and how the Father and Jesus are going to Im- abide in you and intimacy and also promises of the Spirit and how the Spirit's going to dwell in you and it's going to increase this relationship. So that's kind of the, the perspective. I picture John maybe being a little bit like Shannon. And then Shannon talks about like crying a lot, you know, like I think like I wonder if John wasn't that guy who's like just touched by something and wipe a tear away, you know, as he's speaking. Uh, maybe he was like that. All right, so, but John, John's writing, you remember, uh, Shannon was telling a story last week about um, a point, getting to the point of saying enough. Enough's enough. And he talked about his friend from, I think it was junior high, who was getting picked on. And he finally stood up for him and said, that's enough. And that's kind of where John is at in writing these letters. The church is in crisis that he's pastored and shepherded, and his crisis response are these, uh, are these letters that we find at the, toward the end of the New Testament. And so what is he saying? What's going on? Well, John's, John's church is diverse. It's a, it's a collection of Jews and Hellenistic Greeks. And so they're kind of molding together these different cultures They're being oppressed from the outside, from the surrounding uh, Jews and synagogues, but then there's also conflict from within, and that's really what what John is addressing. And so the the prevalent problem that that John is addressing here is what we call Gnosticism. Gnosticism. Gnosticism comes from a a Greek word for uh, gnosis, for to know. To know. So... Gnosticism is about knowledge, and um, it's about spiritual knowledge. So there were certain people within the church claiming to have gained a deeper spiritual knowledge from revelation that they had that was like special revelation that overrode all other levels of authority. Okay, So they were even um, going against John's authority and saying, no, 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 we have a deeper knowledge based on the spiritual experience that we've had that overrides all of what you're saying. So there were a couple different camps in the way that this broke down for the Gnostics. Okay, One camp of the Gnostics was about, they were ascetics, meaning not, not aesthetics or, and not anesthetics, although those words are related, I'm sure, not how I think of it. But um, the ascetics were all about rejecting desire. Okay, 
And then you had the camp that was all about license. And they were like, whatever we do doesn't matter. Because rooted in this, in this worldview of Gnosticism is that the, the world and life is split into a couple of different spheres. Okay, It's called dualism, where you have the physical world or matter, and matter is evil. And matter is even the source of evil. The, the physical world is evil. And some of this might ring a bell for the way that you think, or the way that our culture thinks in some ways. The physical world is evil. The spiritual world is good. And there's a, a massive distinction and separation between the two. And so there are certain things that we do that relate to the evil part of life, and there are certain things we do that relate to the good part of life. And so a couple of different conclusions that you can easily come from with that is the camp on this side. Well, let's just reject this world, and let's go... Um, live in a cave, let's not enjoy any kind of, uh, let's not partake in anything related to our desire, let's just shut everything down. Or you have the camp on this side that's saying, well, since this physical world doesn't matter, it doesn't matter what I do with my body. And so whatever choice I make, whatever I do with my body, whoever I sleep with, whatever I eat, whatever I drink, doesn't matter because I'm safe and secure with Jesus. Okay, so those, those, two, distinct, those two distinctions make sense? So that's from this, this stream of teaching around uh, Gnosticism that's related to Greek culture. And those aspects of Greek culture were imported into the church. And again, as we kind of go through this message today, I want you to think about, well, how are we informed by that today? How am I informed by that in my, um, in my, in my thinking, and is my thinking Biblical, or how biblical is my thinking, and how maybe Hellenistic or Greek or Gnostic is my thinking? So let's think about that. So John writes this letter, and, and the way that Shannon uh, framed it up last week from 1 John 1, I think verse 4, is that he says the reason that he's writing is so that they may have fellowship, and so that uh, his joy, he says, so our joy may be complete. So he talks about fellowship, having fellowship with one another and having fellowship with God and so that their joy may be complete. So we're going to zoom in today on some of this uh, topic of fellowship. Our application from last week was uh, a challenge to think about our fellowship with Jesus. And are there, are there ways that, that our fellowship with Jesus is lacking? Are there things that are keeping us from fellowship with Jesus? And what is he asking us to do or telling us to do that would bring us into deeper fellowship with him? So moving, what we want to do with this series and with uh, every series that we do, uh, particularly these days, is kind of have these joined together and continue to build on one another. So it doesn't just feel like a bunch of disjointed messages that we hear but we're actually building on something and in, in mo- in moving somewhere with it, okay? So think about this fellowship and joy, fellowship and joy. This is why John's writing. It's in a time of crisis. And he, what he wants more than anything is for his people to have fellowship with one another and with God. So let's get to the chunk that we're looking at today. First John chapter 1, verses 5 through 7. John writes, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaimed to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. So again, picture, picture the context, picture John, picture relational, even emotional John writing these words to his people. Okay, This is the message we have heard from Him and proclaim to you that God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness... We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from sin. Let's pause and pray. Lord, prepare our hearts. Prepare our hearts, God, to to learn from you. Prepare our hearts, Lord, for for the challenges that you would bring. God, prepare our hearts for the, uh, to even be offended by your word and like, how could you challenge me in this way? Prepare our hearts to wrestle, God. And 
even for those of us who may have read these words many times, prepare us, God, to mull and to meditate and to go more deeply into your word. Prepare our hearts to take action. And as John says here, to practice the truth and not just hear it. Work within us today, Lord, please. Amen. Amen. All right. So the intention today is to look at verses 5 through 7. We want to understand what John is saying within the context that he was writing within. And we want to go from there and try to understand what are some things that we need to take away today and understand and apply in our lives within our church. So we're going to talk about three main things from these three verses. Truth, light, fellowship. Truth, light, fellowship. Everybody say it with me. Truth, light, fellowship. Truth, light, fellowship. Good, we got it. All right. Truth, light, fellowship. So let's start with truth. All right, so John is addressing these opponents. And John is, is pretty serious about addressing his opponents. And he even calls them antichrists. And that word today is pretty loaded for us. And we add a lot more into that than is a lot of times seen in the New Testament. When we think about the Antichrist, we're often thinking about, I don't know, the things that you read on the internet about Barack Obama or the Pope or (laughs) Illuminati or I don't know. I'm no scholar on the topic, but um, I won't say anything else on that. Anyway, so John is really intense about addressing these opponents in the church, and he's, he's pretty angry. Because he really cares about this group of people, right? And he's invested. Think about, like, let's, let's hold up our standard for what it means to be a successful minister or pastor. What does it look like? Big church, multiplication, growth, lots of money, buildings. What? What does it look like to be a successful pastor? What does it look like to be a successful evangelist? Um, by a lot of our standards, this is just a total tangent. By a lot of our standards, like Moses would be a complete failure. Noah, Noah is an utter failure because the only people that he converted were his family. Like they had to, probably. It's like pastor dragging his kids to church, right? Uh, Jesus, everybody ran away. Like, man, what a bad leader. Everybody fled, one of them naked. Like, that's, how do you want that on your resume, you know? Um, and then we have John who, like, his life work is falling apart. So a lot of us, like, we look at that and we're like, well, pff, dude, dude needs to read some success books. Like, it's not that clear cut, is it? It's not that simple. And so, but John is writing this and he's emotional, he's fired up, and he's addressing his opponents and he's calling them antichrists, which literally just means that they're opposed to Christ. They're just, they're opposed to Christ. And so he's addressing these people, he's addressing this dualistic or Gnostic um, worldview that has infiltrated the church. And some of the ideas or some of the aspects of that, a little more specific, are, like I said before, that the, the physical is evil, the spiritual is good. Salvation, or man is kind of caught in the middle of these two realms, okay? And salvation looks like getting whisked away into the spiritual realm. Again, I want you to pause and think about how do we entertain these thoughts? Salvation for the Gnostic means being taken away from the physical into spiritual. Escaping. Um, Think of like reaching nirvana. Okay? Think about life like a monastic life of escape and, uh, and meditation. Okay? Think about some of the songs that we sing. They're about escape. And that's, that's this, this Greek worldview, you know, that was like, that was foreign to biblical thought until this time and has been kind of imported and infiltrated into our lives. All right, so John's addressing this. Truth relates to the spiritual realm, according to this way of thinking. Truth relates to the spiritual realm. So it's, a, it's, a, it's an abstract, truth relates to the abstract, the spiritual, the non-physical and the consequence is that it requires no life response. There's no ob- obedience to the truth. Okay? 
again, think about our, I'm, gonna, I'm getting a little ahead of myself maybe, but think about the way that we frame up education and learning today. Truth relates to abstract and requires no life response. How many of you have ever been challenged to have a life response in a classroom that you sat in? Say studying chemistry or physics or even history. Like that seems a little bit easier, right? Like don't be stupid, don't repeat history and don't. No, we study these things as facts, right? As historical facts or scientific facts. And we study them and we say, well, that's interesting. That's really interesting. That's fascinating even. But it requires no life response, right? So we, we sep- we've got this distance between these realms. All right, so John's addressing this. Uh, learning is simply intellectual. It's attained through special revelation. Or even as we, as we sort of have, as it's morphed into our world, for some of us today, learning um, is attained through rational thought. It does not involve any life response. Within this worldview, belief is about agreement. Belief's about agreement. Simply agreement, okay? Intellectual assent. So again, does this sound familiar to you? How many of you have like sat in an evangelistic service or had a conversation with somebody and say, the speaker says, do you believe that Jesus can save you from hell? Well, yeah, I don't, hell sounds horrible. Yeah, raise my hand. Do you believe it? Yeah, yeah, I agree. I agree. I agree. Right? You raise your, I see that hand. I see that hand. I see that hand. I heard a story. Who was it? I think. Yeah, I heard a story about a guy sitting in a, in a church service and like everybody's supposed to close their eyes when, when this part happens, but the guy kind of opened his eyes and the pastor's saying, I see that hand, I see that hand, but nobody had their hands up. <laughs> so we'll do that at the end of the service, okay? It's just pop quiz. Um, what we're saying a lot of times is, do you agree with this statement, Jesus is Lord? But the problem is that even demons agree with that statement, Right? Like, there's nothing special about agreement. There's nothing special or unique about intellectual assent that says, yeah, yeah, I embrace that idea. Cool. That sounds sounds good. Like, so what? So what? Go home and it doesn't make any difference to your life. Sadly, that's where a lot of us are at. That's where the church is at, right? Like, think about the way that our learning community, we're not a, a learning community a lot of times. Think about the way... A lot of our churches are designed, maybe even the way that we live within this church. What do we do? What is community? Come here on a Sunday morning, listen to somebody talk for 45 minutes and go home. Sing songs about spiritual experience and then leave. If that's church to us, then we're, a, we're falling right in line with these people that John is saying, hey, these guys are anti-Christ. Right? You might say, like, slow down there, buddy. This is a little bit intense. It is intense. And I welcome somebody to, like, I don't know, get on the church Facebook page later and write a rebuttal. I'm not, can we erase those? I think we had a, we can't, can we? Catherine and I were talking about that the other day. Anyway, um, if that's, if that's, like, the, if that's the, if our church experience is limited to come here, listen to somebody talk, sing some songs about our spiritual experience, and then leave, that's like we're falling right in line with this group that John is, is opposing, right? So, and, and Shannon made a statement last week. He said, look, if you're a part of this church, there's an expectation that you're going to plug in with people. Plug in. The best way that we know to do that right now is through the community groups. It's not saying that's the only way or that's uh, the perfect way. That's just that's the way that we're doing it right now. It's the best way that we've come up with. Hopefully, we'll grow and adjust and, and, and improve and all that. But that's what we've got. That's how we're trying to do this. If you have suggestions, talk to Dan about it. Who is it? To Tracy. Talk to Tracy about it. Uh, she'll fix it. Now, you see, you know, but you see what I'm getting at, right? Like, there's more to this thing than an intellectual and spiritual exercise. But the spiritual exercise is life together. It's gospel, community, and mission together. 
right. I, I remember uh, once being in, I uh, was in the Dominican Republic. We were doing some ministry, and we were going out to do some, uh, when you have no idea what you're doing in ministry, you go somewhere and start to worship. <laughs> and, and God can do really cool stuff when we have no idea what we're doing. He might do better stuff when we do, but I won't talk about that right now. So we knew of a place where um, it was really concentrated in like, uh, prostitution activity. And it happened to be around the, the post office in Santo Domingo, the, the capital city. So we go to the, cap, the, the post office. We're sitting outside and just worshiping and uh, just inviting God to asking him to, to do stuff, to use us somehow. This guy, the security guard, walks up to us, and he is like, noticeably trembling. And he says, I can't believe that you're here. I had a dream last night that angels would come and that God was going to save me. And it was like here. It was at this place. And anytime something like that happens to me, I'm like, no. <laughs> no. You're... This guy's like smoking something. I don't know. But no, it was legit. He was... He was um, this guy was trembling, and he, he just said, I, I need to give my life to Jesus. And we're like, okay. So I, I grabbed a, a, a guy who was with us and said, okay, come on, man. Uh, let's do this. Let's, let's walk with this guy through this process. And so the uh, guy that I was working with starts to pray with him, and, and we had several people around him and praying with him, and the guy's just emotional, and he gives his life to Jesus. And then there's like hugs all around and everything. And, and I'm like, ah, oh, do I have to be that guy? Am I? And I broke it up. They're all celebrating and crying and stuff. I'm like, hold on, guys, hold on. I'm sorry to break up this party. And I start talking to the guy. I'm like, dude, you need to repent. <laughs> like, you, you need to acknowledge the... Um, the barrier between you and Jesus, bring those things into the light so that he can deal with them in your life and you can be reconciled to him. And you might say, well, that sounds intense. And you're right, it does sound intense. It is. You know what happens? The guy starts weeping and saying, I'm an alcoholic. I spend all my money on alcohol and my family's at home without food. And he starts crying out to Jesus saying, I take responsibility for this. I'm owning it. He starts confessing these things to us and asking God to uh, take this guilt away from him and to help him. From that process, we're able to connect him with a pastor who could walk with him through healing to make this life change. See, truth requires a life response. Jesus claims to be the truth. So if you encounter him, you're encountering the truth, right? It requires a life adjustment. It's not just an intellectual, yeah, I agree with that, Jesus. And it's really emotional to get saved from eternal hell, right? Like that's, it doesn't take a lot of intelligence to choose Jesus over hell, right? It doesn't even take that much selflessness to choose Jesus over hell. See what I'm saying? Like you can make that choice and still have a heart full of selfishness and say, yeah, Jesus, save me. Jesus works with that, right? Sometimes I revert to fear as a parent. I'm like, if you walk in, out in that street, I'm going to physically harm you because I don't want you to get hurt, right? That's a, I don't start there. I don't start there with, <laughs> if you don't put your pants on, I'm going to physically harm you. You know, like, I don't, you don't start there, but as a last resort, you use that, and I think God uses it too, but we can't stay there. We can't stay there. All right, so what's John's response? How does John respond? So again, we're talking about truth, light, fellowship. So trying to frame up his opposition a little bit. So John's response in verse 6, he says, If we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not... Oh, it's up there. Do not what? Do you find anything interesting about those last three words? Practice the truth. How many of you have ever sat in a classroom before and heard a lesson about any topic and said, okay, and they said, okay, now practice this? 
Well, you probably have if you're studying like welding or something. But even think about that for a second. Like, why do we look down on trade schools? Why, like, how is our whole educational system framed up? For people who can play the game and practice intellectual assent, who can transfer knowledge and information, right? I love the, the person in, in the classroom who the teacher's talking and the person is, is this on the exam? Well, no, but this is really cool to, to learn about. Oh, and they put their pen down. Oh. This is the future of our country. <laughs> Lord, help us. Um, not all of our educational system is like that, right? Not all of it. And not all of, our, all of our teachers are like that. All right. So John's response, is, I want to I point out three things. First of all, as he says here, truth must be practiced. Truth must be practiced. Truth cannot just be known. It has to be practiced. Three other usages of the word truth in the New Testament. One in, in, uh, is obey. Obey the truth. Galatians 3 and Romans 2. Paul talks about the truth and he, says, he uses this verb, obey. You obey the truth. You follow the truth. You also oppose the truth. That's what Paul says in 2 Timothy. People oppose the truth. So it's not just like there's no neutrality towards truth. If you encounter truth... You either respond or you don't. You either participate and and implement or you oppose. Jesus uses the verb do. You do the truth. He says in John 3.21, Whoever does what is true comes to the light, so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. So whoever does what is true... See, it involves the mind, it involves the intellect, but it's not limited to it. It involves the whole person, the mind, the will, emotions, our attitudes, our relationships, all of us. Jesus also made this really bold, crazy statement that if we know the truth, like that the truth will do what? Will set us free, right? There's actually a plaque up on, you know, Bascom Hill is the kind of the, the, the centerpiece of campus, the big hill that looks down at the Capitol, and there's a statue of Abe Lincoln up there. There's a plaque on one of the buildings on Bascom Hill with this passage uh, engraved into it. It says, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. But the, the statement before that is, <laughs> talks about being Jesus' disciple. If He says something like, if you're my disciple, if you follow me, then you will know the truth. It's an if-then statement. The wonderful thing about the truth is that the truth makes us free, but this is not just simply informational transfer, right? A friend of mine was sitting in a parents' meeting for a school in one of the nearby school districts, and they were talking about sex education. And um, a lot of the rhetoric or talk in, in this meeting was that there was more, more teaching needed, more information. The kids needed more information about sex because that's what was going to fix things. There was, like, uh, there was like high rates of teen pregnancy and STDs and all kinds of issues around this. And so they said, no, 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 we need more education, more education. And, and my, our friend stands up and she says, yeah, but how many of you have, how many of you know what you should eat and you don't? How many of you know that you should exercise and you don't? You know, information is significant, right? Information is super helpful. It's a part of the process. It's a part of the, the, the recipe. But information alone is not the solution, is it? So what, what more is it? What, what do you think? What's some ideas? What more is needed to that scenario? You can practice the truth, right? Um, all right, so William Barclay says, for Christians, truth is first something to be discovered, then to be obeyed. So there's discovery, and there's obedience. All right, so he says, truth must be practiced. Jesus claims to be the truth. 
Knowing the truth will make you free. Okay. The second thing that we're talking about is light. So John addresses this, this idea of truth again, and he says it has to be practiced. He also talks about the light. And again, he's taking on his opponents, and he's building up this argument, and he makes this statement that God is light, and in him no darkness is no darkness at all. So he says, this is the message we have heard from him. Who's him? From Jesus, right? He's saying, this is, the, this is the first-hand message that we heard, and I'm proclaiming it to you, that God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us. So he's taking on his opponents, kind of using their argument, in some ways, against them. But he's, he's saying, with there, there's no place, there's no possibility of darkness cohabitating with God. There's no possibility of it. So God is light. So I want to look at this from two aspects, from God's nature and character. So what, what's the nature of light? The nature of light is that it, it rids darkness, right? Like it, it rids a space of darkness. It shows um, blemishes. It shows imperfections. Any of you, uh, any of you, do-it-yourself drywallers, and you think your drywall looks good, and then you turn on a nice work light. Like, no. Or maybe you've like gotten ready at home, and you get yourself all ready, and then you get to some place with some good lighting around the mirror, and you think, "Oh my lord, whoa!" Or you got a big patch that you didn't shave, or whatever. Uh, that's what it felt like when I got married. By the way. And it's like, I thought, no, I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. And then I started to live every day with another person. I thought, oh, Lord, no. I missed that spot. And it goes down to my heart. No. This is the worst, most wonderful thing ever. (laughs) Marriage and relationship are opportunity for holiness. Opportunity for righteousness. Not just a chance to have sex. Though that does happen. <laughs> yeah, you missed it. It was. <laughs> All right. So the, the nature of liar, God's nature, like this, just, just who he is, just who he is by his nature is that he, his light exposes his life. His light radiates it. It also gives life. Right. The city that we read about in Revelation says that there's no light needed. He is the light. He just radiates from his presence. His character, on the other hand, these are the things about God which he chooses. The pure is purity of intention, his purity of action, the purity of his choice. So there's the, the natural aspect, and then there's the character aspect of this is who God is. Just a, a quick tangent is that something that we need to get from this is that there's no darkness in God, okay? Just how John said it, there's no darkness in God. Sometimes we entertain this idea that God has been different through different periods of time. And we make statements like, oh, now God is good because Jesus came. God used to be mean. That's not what the Bible teaches. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen somebody else. Who? The Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I only do what the Father says. I only say what the Father says. In other words, you can look at stories throughout Scripture and say, well, what would Jesus do? (laughs) Well, this happened in the Old Testament, and we've got some intense questions about it. Well, let's look at this through Jesus, the lens of Jesus' life, and interpret. Based on the goodness of God's character, what does this story mean? Okay? So that's just a little nugget for us. Like, we, we need to get our heads around that, because how can you trust somebody who shifts from, like, mean to nice? Some of you have had parents like that. Some of you might be that parent. You go from mean to nice, and you think, man, I don't know who I'm going to get today. 
I'll just stay away until I like, can test the water a little bit. If that's the thinking that we have about who God is, we're going to relate with him accordingly. Okay, or we're just going to do the Jesus thing. Like, no, Jesus, I'll just come to you. This is far enough. And Jesus is like, no, I'm not going to ask for you. You're going to ask the Father. You're going to go. You're going to go to the Father. All right, so God is light. And then he talks about walking in the light. There's no state of just being in the light, okay? John doesn't talk about being in the light. He talks about walking in the light. Walking is a, this progressive, active process, right? Step by step, choice by choice, day by day, relationship by relationship, walking in the light. It's ongoing, it's active. So I want to point out four things for us, okay? Walking in the light, what does it look like? It's evidenced by our lifestyle. How do I know if I'm walking in the light? Well, sit down with somebody who loves you and knows you and ask them, am I walking in the light? Do I relate with you in a way that is, that is uh, consistent with God's character? Look at yourself. Look at your lifestyle. It's evidenced by our lifestyle. It's evidenced by total, total transparency and being known. Lifestyle, total transparency, being known. The fourth thing I want to point out is that it's about being purified. Okay, so total transparency. When we walk in the light, John says later on, if we confess our sins to one another, he is faithful to forgive and to heal us. So this part of this being cleansed, and the last part of this, uh, chapter 7, talks about being cleansed by the blood of Jesus. A part of that cleansing process is confession to one another. God has set things up in a way that confession and relationship are integral to the process of cleansing and healing. You can't do it on your own. You can't do it. You can't live a holy life in your closet alone. You have to do it in relationship. Look at the fruit of the Spirit. What are they? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, self-control. Something else I always forget. These are all about relationship, right? The fruit of the Holy Spirit. In other words, the essence of holiness in your life looks like neighborliness, relationship lived out in a healthy way. All right, so truth, light, fellowship. Let's hit this. All right, so again, why is John writing? So that people can have fellowship, right? One another with God. John's disturbed. John throughout, and maybe even like the Gospel of John, he, he probably wrote that. He, he wrote that record based on his experience, but also maybe for the people that he was leading, right? Kind of with them in mind to read it. And so he's emphasizing all these things about unity and fellowship with God and with one another, with his people in mind. The thing about fellowship with, with God and with one another is that they are inseparable. They're even causative toward one another. When you relate with other people in fellowship, it causes a deeper fellowship with God. When you relate with God, truly, it causes a deeper relationship with other people. They're not, they're not inseparable. And some of you have probably experienced trying to do those separately. And some of you are experiencing that now, trying to do those things separately. And when we talk about fellowship with people, we'll talk a little more about this in a second. I'm not just talking about doing what you always do, but just doing it together, okay? I'm not just talking about sitting around drinking high life and watching football, although that can be a part of it. I don't know about high life, like depending on who you are, but your taste and background and all that stuff, but... It's not just going on about life as, as usual. Does that make sense? There's something more that's required of us as we do fellowship with each other. And it's not just eating hot dishes in the fellowship hall. Right? Thank the Lord for that. Did I say that right? Hot dish? Casserole. Okay. All right, so... 
fellowship with God and with others, those go together. Walking in the light, okay? So there's a, there's a proof and a promise around walking in the light that Jesus points out to us. This is from John 14, 15. He makes this statement. Does anybody know this by memory? I'll be super impressed. John 14, 15. It's not up there. Anybody? Okay. Jesus says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. The NIV translates it differently. It says, If you love me, keep my commandments. What does that sound like? If you love me, keep my commandments. In order. Kind of an agreement. But the ESV translates it more directly with a future tense. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. What does that make you think of? A little bit of a different spin on it, isn't it? There's a, there's a, there's a promise and a proof there, okay? If you love me, prove it by keeping my commandments. If you love me, keep my commandments. There's also a promise. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. You will. It's just it's a natural result. It's a natural consequence. If you love, you will. I don't go about every day saying, okay, if I love Emma, I won't cheat on her. If I love her, I won't cheat on her. If I, and she doesn't, when I, if I leave the house in the morning, she's not saying like, if you love me. <laughs> None of that funny stuff. You know, we haven't had that conversation. That's a natural result, right? So my focus is not on not cheating on her. My focus is on loving her well. And lo and behold, it turns out that when I do that, I don't cheat on her. It's just crazy the way that it works out, right? And Jesus is kind of pointing out that same simple thing in our relationship with him. If you love me, you will. You'll just do it. There is also the proof there. If you love me, like, you will do it. If you love me, you will do it, right? Sounds good. So fellowship with God has these amazing effects on our lives. It helps us to do the right thing. The focus is not just doing the right thing. So what is fellowship? I'm not going to go deep into this because there's a lot around this that I don't know and get, but um, the Greek word koinonia is where we translate this word fellowship. There's no real good English translation for this word, but it basically encompasses a very dynamic and complex relationship. Think about a uh, think about a family business. You have uh, someone who's your partner. You have a cooperative relationship with them, right? But then they're also your brother or your sister. They're also your dad or your mom, your son or your daughter. That gets complicated pretty fast, right? But that's, those are kind of the facets that are, that are going on here with this term koinonia and around fellowship is that there's a cooperative part and there's a social part. There's a part where you're on mission together and there's a part where you just are together. It's good enough. It doesn't need a mission, right? Marriage is a good, um, marriage and parenting together are a good illustration of that because <laughs> you are on mission together and you got to be on the same page about how things are going down in this house. Right? And whether you're using two wipes or three, you know, and you know, these are like important details like that. But um, it also, though, in, within this cooperative and social thing, it involves things like sacrifice and sharing. And it's not just that it involves it, but it demands it. This idea of koinonia, fellowship, demands sacrifice and fellowship, uh, sacrifice and sharing. It's not just a good idea. It's not just something that makes you feel good. It's, it's a requirement. It's a, it's a natural result of fellowship. Okay, so a few things I want to point out here. We'll move toward our application, okay? Number one, fellowship's hindered by sin. Fellowship's hindered by sin. Period. An example of that is sex before marriage, okay? Just get specific on, on this area. Sex outside of marriage is a bad idea because it hinders fellowship. You might think, well, we're not hurting anybody. We're just doing our thing. Don't tell us what to do. I'm not telling you what to do. Jesus is telling you what to do, okay? I'm just helping you hear it. It's a bad idea. Why? Because you're partaking, especially for somebody who has at least sort of a, some reference point for that being wrong. What you're doing is partaking in the most intimate, most personal 
activity that you can ever have with another person and doing it outside of relationship with God, apart from his affirmation, apart from his love and joy, and unable to see it as a generous gift from him. And what you do, that becomes a habit, and there's secrecy, and there's other things involved with that, potentially. And you import that into your marriage. It doesn't just go away. You create a culture together, and you walk that out. When we have sex together, it's away from God's presence. It's away from his affirmation, joy, and generosity. Is that the way that you want to partake in the best gift that God has to give you? Kind of just partially feeling bad about it? You don't want that. That's why it's a bad idea, right? Sin hinders fellowship. Whether it's, it's impacts on your own personality and your attitudes and yourself, or the impact that it has on other people, or the impact that it has on God. Fellowship involves conflict. Fellowship is not just harmonious all the time, okay? It's not just nice, neat all the time. Con- relationship requires conflict so that we can know one another. Conflict is an opportunity to know what another person cares deeply about, right? So if we're fighting and we're in disagreement, I can pause and say, well, tell me why this is so important to you. I can see it's really important to you. Tell me why. Help me understand it. We might not agree, but I want to know what you care about so that we can move ahead together. Relationships even strengthened by conflict. It's a great quote for you. With trust, conflict becomes the pursuit of truth. With trust intact, conflict becomes the pursuit of truth, not just a fight. Okay? The third thing I want to say about fellowship is that uh, fellowship with God in particular is about intention. It's not just about activity. It's also about intention. It's about the orientation of our heart. There's a lady who uh, was in a crowd of people with Jesus, and everybody's butted up against Jesus. And um, think about how you are in a crowd, in a crowded market, stampede. What do you do with your arms? You protect, right? And, but this lady did something different. She reached out and touched Jesus. What's required in that? You expose yourself, right? She exposes herself and touches Jesus. And Jesus turns around and says, who touched me? And the disciples say, well, everybody did. No, 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 somebody touched me. Somebody touched me more deeply than contact. And and the lady's like, oh, she, she realizes she's exposed. She said, it was me, it was me. And he says, way to go, way to go. You're well, you're well. He healed her. Proximity to Jesus is not enough. Being in the right place is not enough. Activity is not enough. The orientation of her heart and her attitude and her posture was what was different from every other person. That's why you might have somebody who's gone to church their whole life and then a crack addict, and the cracked addict is in fellowship with Jesus and the person who's gone to church their whole life isn't. Because it's about the orientation of the heart. I'm not saying that this person should say, oh, I love my crack more than anything else in the world and forget everything else, I'm going to heaven someday. It's not like that. It's about the orientation of their heart, not just your location or your proximity, okay? It's about what direction are you going. Are you moving toward Jesus? Are you moving away? And there's no neutral ground. You might be a mile from Jesus, but if you're moving towards him, he says, hey, come on. Think about the thief on the cross. Right? The last moments of his life. He didn't have a chance to go to church service, take communion or whatever. He just said, hey, Jesus, I see who you are. Can I go with you? He says, come on. Right? In that moment, the orientation of his heart changed. And Jesus welcomed him. He entered into fellowship with God. All right, so I want to give a couple of challenges. Worship team can go ahead and come up. We'll move into a worship response. I want to challenge you, okay, with some application. Again, the truth cannot just be heard. It has to be done and practiced. Number one, I want to challenge you to a lifestyle of response, of learning, exploring, always seeking and responding to the truth. Not just, not just gathering facts, but seeking and responding to the truth. Number two, I want to challenge you to a lifestyle of repentance. 
dealing ruthlessly with sin in our lives. When we're in fellowship with God, sin's never okay. And it becomes less okay the more that we get to know Him, the more obscene it becomes. And the smaller thing, the, the thing that when you were a mile away from Jesus and now like you might, you might have thought, well, that was no big deal. I just gave the person a dirty look. What's the big deal? And Jesus says, no, you've hated your brother. You've hated your sister. The closer we get to him, sin becomes more and more obscene and we're more and more heartbroken by it. Deal ruthlessly with sin. A lifestyle of response, a lifestyle of repentance, and a lifestyle of fellowship. As I was praying for this time, I felt like this is what God wants us to get from not just today, not just this message, but for this season of Damascus Road Church. And I'm a part of this and I'm committed to this with you guys. To partake in fellowship. Nobody, I don't think anybody like joins a a church and they think, well, I hope this is a mediocre experience. (laughs) Nobody gets married and say, well, I hope we get divorced in a few years and that this is really horrible. No, you want it to be great, right? And I want to be a part of a fellowshipping church with you. And I started to pray this morning and I was like, God, give us fellowship, give us fellowship. And I felt like he said, no, I won't do that. I'll make you fellowshippers. It's not just a cloud that's gonna come upon us, you guys. Like it's a decision that we make and a commitment that we make to transparency, to being known, to sharing with and cooperating with one another, to be fellowshippers. And I want you guys to, I wanna challenge you with that and say, I'm making that commitment. And there's some of you here today who feel like outcasts who think you don't belong. And if I had everybody raise their hands, I bet 75% of people here would raise their hands and say, yeah, I'm not quite, I'm not quite in. You guys, we gotta move past that and we gotta help each other move past it. Invite each other. But it starts with somebody taking the risk and saying, hey, you know what? I wanna be known by you. Like, I wanna share life with you. I wanna share with your needs. You've gotta take the initiative. It's not gonna happen from an elders meeting. It happens from within each of us, right? So uh, let's pray and respond to the things, steps of obedience that God is giving us to, to walk out in. Lord, um, I pray that you will help us to become fellowshippers, people who fellowship, who partake in life with you and with one another well. We invite your challenge. invite your challenge, Lord, and we want to to know you more. We want to be known by you and know one another and be known by one another. Help us forward, Lord. Amen.